You're listening to Discovering Multifamily, where we discuss all educational topics in commercial real estate with an emphasis on multifamily apartment investing via syndication. And now your hosts, former NFL fullback Brian Leonard and Anthony Scandariato. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Discovering Multifamily podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Scandariato with Red Knight Properties. And today we have a very special guest here. He's been featured on um, a lot of Bigger Pockets material with Brandon Turner, uh, Paul Moore, and he's also the founder and managing partner at Wellings Capital. And uh, he specializes in a lot, a lot of different things, but um, in general, Wells Capital helps uh, high-income earners, um, generally, quote-unquote, accredited investors, uh, protect and grow their wealth through um, passive investing. So we have a lot of things in common that um, you know we want to talk about here. And he invests with the best-in-class operating partners who have strong records of um, experience in um, you know, their respective asset classes. And Paul can kind of talk about his experience with multifamily specifically and a couple of other asset classes he likes, um, especially you know, recording this towards hopefully the tail end of the, the COVID-19 crisis in, uh, in, in June we're recording this. So I um, want to appreciate Paul for coming on the show and definitely looking forward to hearing what he has to say. It's great to be here, Anthony. Thanks for having me on. Great, Paul. So you want to just kind of give an overview on your opinion on the multifamily market kind of coming out of the, the last recession up until, you know, where we are today in 2020? Yeah. So I did uh, residential real estate for years and I always wanted to get into commercial, but I didn't know who to trust or where the on-ramp was if I need, you know, $10 million or whatever. Well, in 2011, I did an oil and gas investment in North Dakota. I ended up investing in North Dakota in multifamily. We could get into that in more detail if you want later, but it was workforce housing. And I came out of that with a love for commercial real estate, specifically multifamily. And I wrote a book that was humbly <clears throat> entitled The Perfect Investment. And that's what I call multifamily. And so uh, I really believe that the demographics and the long-term uh, view, the long-term demographic trends and where we're going as a nation is gonna make multifamily really powerful asset class for a very, very long time. Now that was in 2016, that book sold very well. It's actually being republished by a legit publisher this time, not myself. Uh, and um, the, the problem is a lot of people picked up on that. You know, I guess they read my book, just kidding. Seriously, a lot of people have picked up on this. And I feel like the perfect investment's not always perfect if the price is too high. So especially with class A, you know, that really expensive multifamily, I've have felt like it's been overheated for a number of years, but we're about to see a shift and we've been predicting this for a long time. There's going to be a day when the shoe drops and when that happens, there's going to be a potential that multifamily is going to take a drop and there's going to be, a, a, again, a, a great opportunity to invest. 100% agree, Paul. Uh, so what are the markets that you've been investing with? So as far as geography, we have not invested in any specific market because we have shifted our focus away from uh, investing in assets to investing with operators. So we pick the best operators we can. 
and we invest heavily with them. It's sort of a Warren Buffett model. He finds managers he loves, like a guy from New Jersey named Tom Murphy. I think it was New Jersey or New York. And he actually invested heavily with him when Murphy and Capital Cities bought ABC in 1979, and they sold it in the mid-90s to Disney for billions of dollars of profit. And his focus was on the managers, Murphy and his partner, and not on the geography of, you know, of, you know, ABC or the specifics of ABC as much. So that's what we do. Awesome. Now, did you before operate at all? Were you involved in any of the real estate companies that you're now helping you and your investment uh, pool uh, essentially come into deals with that? Were you on that side before? And if you were, how was the transition? Um, you know what? I was an operator and we realized, I read a book that your audience is probably familiar with by Gary Keller and Jay Papazon called The One Thing. And the one thing convinced me, especially in my mid to late 50s, that I need to narrow my focus as much as possible. And so being a property manager, an asset manager, running an acquisitions team, all the things we were doing as an operator didn't make sense to me anymore. I decided I really wanted to focus on raising capital. And to do that, I'd have to find the very best in-class operators I could find. And so that's what we've focused on. We, um, we don't operate anymore. We found we were not as good of an operator as we were at raising money. We found that there were much, much, there were phenomenal operators. They're very hard to find a great, truly world-class operator, but that's the obsession of our company, Wellings Capital, right now, is finding those few really needle in a haystack operators. Right, and that that makes a lot of sense because uh, you've seen kind of both sides of the business, and now you've found the niche that you want to focus on. And obviously, that's dependent upon market cycles. You know, which side do you want to be on? So, I know we started to talk about market cycles. Can you kind of talk about where you think uh, we're going to be coming out of COVID nineteen? Um, you know, going back to normal, um, although it's, you know, at least in my neck of the woods in the tri-state area, it's been slower than a uh, majority of the rest of the country. So yeah. um, you think that there's going to be some significant, you know, buying opportunities and when do you think they're going to happen? And um, should we still stay in that if you are investing in multifamily in that workforce, um, you know, housing sort of BC asset demographic, um, as opposed to, you know, the luxury, you know, new construction, even on the development side. Um, what, what's your opinion just moving forward? You know, Howard Marks wrote a classic book that I recommend all the time. It's called Mastering the Market Cycle, Getting the Odds in Your Favor. And Howard Marks is ahead of Oak Tree Investments. They have invested billions and billions of dollars and made many billions of dollars along the way as well. He's one of the most successful operators in history that we know of, at least. And um, he says that when a market is to the point where the margins are so thin and the optimism is so high that it's time to get out because often you're stacking logs on a fire waiting for a spark. And I think that's what's been happening in especially class A and B multifamily the last couple of years. They've been waiting for a spark. Well, whoever dreamed that the spark would be such a, would turn into such a roaring flame in just three months. 
uh, four right. months since COVID hit. And so I really do think that there's going to be a massive adjustment. I could go through the math if we had more time of why uh, multifamily is going to, and along with other, a lot of other asset classes, is going to take a significant downward trend. Workforce housing is going to do much better. In fact, single-family residential, workforce housing, self-storage, mobile home parks, which is another form of workforce multifamily, they're going to do much, much better than average. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But I really do believe that is the place to go. And that's the place to be right now. And I think it's a good time to talk about stacking firewood. It's a good time also to stack Benjamins. It's a good time to be ready for some of the best buying opportunities ever. I would say you've got time. You've got time to get yourself in the right, in the right mind, in the right headspace. Number two, get your team together. Get, number three, get your tribe together and be ready to scoop up some of the best investment opportunities that I don't think will come to at least late 2021 and beyond. Based on the 20, 2009 recession, the real estate bottom wasn't hit till first quarter of 2012. That was the very bottom. That was two and a half years, even three and a half years later than the recession, than the heart of the recession. Right, right. And and who knows, you know, when that point's going to be. I, I have a feeling, like you said, it's you're going to definitely see adjustments. You know, there's going to be maturities, there's going to be loans that are going to be due, and, you know, the owners aren't in a position, they're in funds, so they might not be in a position to refinance, or maybe they just refinanced, and they might be over their head. So I'm on the same page as you. I, I do think that there's going to be a lot more of discounted properties, and I'm seeing it already um, to some extent. Um, properties that we were working on, we fortunately were able to to get discounts on, and had the sellers kind of come to the new reality of of where the market is. Um, I mean, you look at unemployment numbers and how many people are out of work right now. So it has an effect on everything. So you're correct, and um, so a, a, another question I would have: so should we be it sounds like we should be in fundraising mode then, as opposed to, to buying strictly, correct? Kind of waiting for the, the real dip, because yeah. like you said, it hasn't 100% happened yet. It's starting to. Yeah. Well, let's look at some facts. Warren Buffett is, as far as we know, the most successful investor in history. He's, of course, stacked up about 120 or $130 billion in cash, and he's been criticized for years for this, but he's not worried. Um, he is looking for the best buying opportunities. And, you know, honestly, February, March of 2020, you would have thought he grabbed that he would have grabbed some more of those discounted stocks, but he didn't. And I think he thinks the best buying opportunities ahead. Howard Marks said, I hope I never see another meltdown like 2008. But he said that in 2018, by the way. Um, but now here he is assembling the largest distressed debt fund ever. $10 million minimum to get in, by the way. And he is trying to raise, uh, I think it's 15 or maybe it's $35 billion to buy distressed debt and distressed assets. And so there's going to be a lot of carnage out there. And um, I think, you know, we can actually be in a place to help people it's not taking advantage of people to buy an asset that they already lost to the bank. 
Right. And it can actually help them if we buy distressed debt from the bank, we can actually give them a discount to pay it off, still make a profit for our investors, help the bank, help the operator, help everybody. And so that's what we want to be positioned to do in the upcoming carnage. Sure. And are, are you on, are your operators that you work with, Paul, on the same, have the same mindset as you do? And how important is it to, if you're assisting with capital raising or whatever the function may be, um, how important is it to, to have this, the same values as your operator? You know, I think it's really, they don't have to have the same strategy. I mean, so we, we want diversification across asset types, geographies, operators, assets, and strategies. And so we have to have the same values, but we don't have to have the same strategy. You know, they say that, you know, uh, one of the things we say around our company is we want to pick an operator that we're going to end up in trouble with. Now, why do I say that? Well, let's face it. Every good, uh, every problem you have started out as a good idea. Every bad investment you've ever made started out as a, apparently a good one. And so we know that there's problems in any deal. And if we're going to have problems, we want to be in, you know, in league with the very most ethical, moral, wonderful operators that we can find. And that's what we spend a lot of our time and our obsession finding is those people. Sure. No, it makes a lot of sense. And how, how long does it take you to evaluate potential operators? Because there's so many of them, obviously, including uh, my company um, that are out there. What is sort of your, your criteria, obviously, besides um, you know, ethical is de- definitely number one, honest and trustworthy, you know, right up, right up there. Um, but what else do you look for when you're evaluating, you know, and helping um, operators uh, pull yeah. funds together? Yeah. So real quickly, I'll buzz through a few of these 25 items. We want to find out about their track record. What's their best and worst performing deal? Provide documentation. We want to meet the key people at their office and on location in the field. We wanna see how they talk about the waiter or waitress, their spouse, the investors, the employees. We wanna find out about their moral compass. We wanna fully read and digest their operating agreement and their PPM. We wanna do a background check, criminal check, driving records, you know, their history to see what type of people they really are. We wanna check their debt. We wanna see if they have any SEC violations. We want to see if um, they're going to give us a, you know, a better deal if we bring a lot of money to the table, because then we can pass that along to our uh, operators, excuse me, to our investors. So those are some of the things we look for. But the one intangible that you sort of touched on, Anthony, is we want to look for gut feel. My wife for years would get these bad or really good feelings about potential investment opportunities. She knows nothing, nor does she want to know about investing. So it really irritated me when she was right, but she was a lot. And I wish I had listened to her more and I do now, but I also want to, I mean, you know, we have three, I think it's 3000 nonverbal signals that we give off through our tone, through our posture, through, you know, even little eyebrow twitches. Our brains can do three trillion calcul, no, three quadrillion calculations per second. And so our brains sometimes pick up on those things we don't actually know that they're there, but our gut does. And our gut is like our second brain. And there's actually a feeling you get in your gut and you should follow that most of the time, way more than your head, which is way more likely to fall 
for greed, you know, in the, in, for, you know, for the reasons of greed or wanting to believe something's true. I have invested in things years ago that my gut said no on and my head said yes on. You know how that ended. 100% agree. Um, it's that, that in, intuitive spark almost that you get that's from someone you're really close to that you trust is, is more, in my opinion, more valid than maybe your own opinion. Right. <laughs> uh, almost a gut check at the end of the day. Um, so what, what else are you focusing on nowadays, Paul, kind of in light of the crisis? Yeah, so we've been doing the same thing for a while. We've been actually looking for, we've been trying to figure out the best recession-resistant asset types. And though we really believe in data centers, we don't know enough about them. If you think about it, data centers are probably going to do pretty well in the upcoming crisis. So we like that, but we also like mobile home parks. We like self-storage. And there's going to come a day when we might do senior living and distressed debt and distressed assets given the COVID crisis. And so we're actually gearing up to do those types of things right now. The great thing about real estate is this. I could go to lunch and lose 10 or 20% of my, um, my equity in the stock market. But right. real estate's really slow. It takes years, well, at least months, but sometimes years to react. And so if I can, you know, if, because I'm a real estate investor, I'm in a position where I can actually uh, be ready. I can have my team, my tribe, and everything put together. I'm taking my time right now looking into distressed debt, and I feel like I've got more than ample time because I think that distressed debt's really going to be hitting the market in about one to three years. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And can you, you kind of, you touched upon something a little bit in terms of, um, you know, obviously going, going to lunch and looking at the Dow and, <laughs> and, and we all remember that one day in March when it was down, yeah. what was it? 30% yeah. in one day. And I, I, I got multiple phone calls from multiple people who was just freaking out. Um, that happens, uh, you know, every day and not that drastically, at least historically, you know, right. due to crises. But uh, so what, what's kind of the benefits of, you know, investing in, in real estate um, on, on the more passive side? Um, and, and because you don't have to worry about market fluctuations in the stock market. And, yeah. you know, even though it's even though it's illiquid, how do you kind of get over the hump of that illiquidity? Um, yeah. But kind of look at the bigger picture, right? Yeah. So let's look at something that's very liquid, the stock market. Warren Buffett is the greatest stock investor ever again, but he believes that you should invest with the mindset that it is completely illiquid. He believes you should invest with the thought that even if the stock market shut down for a decade, you would still have a great investment. If he thinks that way about something that's liquid, how much more should we be happy to be in a somewhat illiquid investment? Now think about in your mind a scale. On the left end of the scale, you've got stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, completely liquid, but they're subject to the next CEO scandal or Elon Musk, you know, smoking pot on the Joe Rogan podcast, or, you know, I mean, his stock dropped like a rock the next week. I mean, 
all kinds of things, you know, war in the Middle East. You know, you're vulnerable to all these things, just the mood on Wall Street. At the other end of the scale, you've got something that's very illiquid, which again, Buffett says is the best way to be anyway, and it's real estate. It's not subject to the mood on Wall Street, at least not in the very short run. It's not subject to a war in the Middle East in general, but there's a liquidity premium, which means you can't just go cash it in in five minutes notice. And I think, again, that's a benefit. You don't make quick decisions in real estate. You take your time and you've got time to prepare. And like we talked about earlier, we're preparing and you're preparing to raise capital for opportunities that are coming down the pike. Awesome. No, that, that makes a lot of sense, Paul. And I like what you said about Warren Buffett. You think of anything you invest in being illiquid. So if everybody had the same mindset on that as it relates to real estate, I think, I think the world would kind of be, be a lot, you know, 80% of the country would be better off because a lot of 80% of the country lives paycheck to paycheck and have less right. than $1,000 in their bank account. So I think, uh, I think that's very, very interesting what you, what you said there. Um, so we're going to kind of wind down the show a little bit, Paul. I usually like to ask three, you know, kind of wrap up questions towards the end. Um, do you have a, I know we talked about a lot of things in, in your book as well. Outside of your book, what, what was the, a business book or real estate book that kind of helped shape your future and where you are today? Uh, one would be the one thing which I mentioned. Another book, you know, is a great book by uh, Steve Burgess. That's B-E-R-G-E-S. You probably know the book. It's The Complete Guide to Buying and Selling Apartment Buildings. I love that. I also mentioned already Howard Mark's book, Mastering the Market Cycle. Snowball by, uh, you know, the biography of uh, Warren Buffett. Those would all be important books in my mind. Awesome. And what are your... I'm assuming one of your role models is Warren Buffett, correct? <laughs> well, I'm actually writing a book on Warren Buffett's rules for real estate investors. So I'm fairly obsessed with his investing strategy right now. I've got 21 chapters done. I'm hoping I'm going for 30 here. Awesome. Well, I'm definitely going to pick up a copy once it's done. And um, what are your hobbies outside of, you know, investing and real estate? Yeah, Brandon Turner stumped me with this question actually on Bigger Pockets podcast. I kind of was like, no, but I really love work. And so um, I work a lot. Uh, as far as hobbies, I, I love watching, snuggling up with my wife, watching movies. Uh, our whole family's movie families. I've got two kids who want to be in film. One's going to uh, composing school, the other film school. So we watch a lot of movies. Um, my son and I like to go fishing in uh, Canada and places like that. And so uh, that's pretty much what we do. Like really like to spend family time. I don't, I've tried golf three times and threw my clubs away twice and sold them the third time. <laughs> that's funny. Um, how can people find you, Paul? They can go to my website, which is wellingscapital.com. That's W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S wellingscapital.com. Awesome. And we'll put a link to Paul's uh, profile, LinkedIn profile and, and website in the comments section and on iTunes. So everybody has a chance to reach out to Paul. Um, but I really enjoyed this interview, Paul, and I hope, you know, our listeners got something out of it and I uh, hope to have you on the podcast again in, in a year or so and see where you guys are and 
hopefully um, some more of these opportunities that you talked about come a little sooner than what, what was forecasted. Um, so yeah. really looking forward to it. Hopefully so. Okay, great being on the show. Thank you so much, Anthony. Great show. Thank you, Paul.